Good to be with you. And boy, I'll tell you, this uh, uh, auditorium is just perfect for music and to get the natural tone without having to put everything through a board and just so pretty. Thank you very much to musicians and all. My name is Barry Arnold, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, pastored in Gresham for many years, and I'm delighted to be with you again this morning to, to uh, share God's Word. <clears throat> Are we up for, we're good to go? Okay, let's see if I can get good, good, good to go too. Hey, how about that? It works. So today, uh, we are returning to a, a series from the, the book of Nehemiah that Robin started back in September. And uh, the man, Nehemiah, was one of about 10,000 people in Israel uh, who were deported when uh, Assyria attacked or, I mean, Babylonia attacked Israel in 586 B.C. And years later, Nehemiah had been living in, in uh, uh, Babylonia in Susa. Years later, Nehemiah prayed for four months because the Lord had laid something on his heart. And then he went to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, requesting permission to take leave of his job as official cupbearer to the king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the gates and the walls. Amazingly, Artaxerxes said yes, and he not only financed the trip, but he sent along soldiers to protect the, the caravan, and he also gave Nehemiah official documents with, with the king's signature requiring all subjects of the empire, the Persian empire, to assist Nehemiah along the way. From Susa to Persia, Nehemiah's entourage would have traveled up the Euphrates River, some 700 miles or so, and then turned south for another almost 300 miles through Syrian territory and then right above Judah, Judea, uh, Samaritan territory. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, and after they arrive, Nehemiah assessed the damage to the walls and the gates and and finding everything in utter ruins, he recruited workers and began this monumental task of rebuilding. Now, you just heard chapter 3 uh, read for us. Uh, great job. Great job. on the, You know, the whole thing was a test whether you could do the names. The names, I mean... It, you know, people don't like reading the Bible aloud because the names are like, oh my goodness. But the good thing is, you can't get it wrong because the, the Hebrew script only had consonants, no vowels. So however you said them, that's the right way, okay? That's the, that's the authoritative way. Uh, but chapter 3, as he said, is kind of a parenthesis. It, it, uh, it kind of backs away from the, the storyline to give us this overview of the reconstruction. Now, Nehemiah was a very good leader. He was very good at, at delegating. And these are important qualities uh, for a leader. In fact, uh, it was just a few weeks ago that I had a pastor tell me that uh, he was kind of lamenting. He said, yeah, 
Nobody in my church has stepped forward to lead the Christmas program. So he said, I'm thinking about, what would you think if we didn't have one? And I'm going, what? Uh, so I asked, who have you approached? Well, um, well, um, well, nobody stepped forward. And, and I said, no, that's not the point. He hadn't asked anybody. People love to be asked to do something. Most people are honored to help. Nehemiah asked everybody to step up, and in almost every case, we're going to see an exception, almost every case, they did. 28 times in the chapter that Nick just read, we see the words next to him, next to them, next to that, the next section, beyond him, beside him. So whenever possible, Nehemiah assigned sections of the wall uh, that were near people's homes. So it was convenient for them to get there, and they had a vested interest in the security of, of their neighborhoods. He took vocations into consideration. The, the high priest and his fellow priest rebuilt the sheep gate through which animals were brought for sacrifice. Goldsmiths, perfume makers, merchants worked on the gates leading to their business districts. Fishermen worked on the, fisher, the fish gate. Bakers, the oven gate, and, and so on. Some workers commuted from miles away. Uh, uh, imagine hiking twice a day to and from uh, to, uh, Jerusalem from Jericho. You, I mean, you have to go 18 miles up some uh, 3,400 feet and then back down again. Other workers came from Tekoa, from Gibeon, from Mizpah. And those workers rebuilt sections of the wall where there weren't very many homes. So 11 gates and four towers are mentioned in chapter 3, and the work all took place simultaneously. Here's verse 1 of chapter 3 again. Eliasib, the, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set, it up, set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, I love this, because you've got the high priest and other clergy carrying hod. They're, they're carrying stones. They're, they're piling up stones. One of the few times I've been left completely speechless was one time when, uh, at, at Cornerstone, we didn't have a youth pastor, and, uh, and, I had asked, and I asked my associate pastor, I said, hey, could you just start, just step into the youth role for a little bit, temporarily? Just go to the youth meetings. We've got volunteers that are doing most everything, but, but just go in and, and, and temporarily fill that gap. You could have knocked me over with a feather when he said, uh, I'd rather not. That feels like a demotion. A demotion? I was stunned. Because for many, many years, I've always said, there are no demotions when it comes to serving God. All there is is roles that need filling. Ruth Harms Calkin wrote a great poem titled, I Wonder. You know, Lord, how I love to serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how I eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study, but how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw 
and nobody knew. Those last two lines get me every time I read that poem. Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. It doesn't say serve when it makes you feel really good. Serve when when other people are noticing. Serve when you get compliments. Serve if the job fits your, your gifting. Peter wrote, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. God gets the work done. And everybody works for God's glory. For some of Nehemiah's priests, this was probably the very first time they'd ever gotten calluses on their their hands. They were eager, but not everybody was eager. Verse 5 mentions Tekoa, a town five miles south of Jerusalem. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles from Tekoa would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Tekoa's elites apparently thought the work was beneath them. It would have been a demotion in their minds. And the language suggests pride is the issue more than sheer laziness. But they were shown up by the really good people from Tekoa, other workers, ordinary people who not only finished their assignment, but verse 27 says, next to them the men of Tekoa repaired another section. They got done and they moved on to another section from the great projecting wall to the Tower of Ophel. Certainly the the best work happens when people from diverse backgrounds and interests and abilities combine their efforts to do God's work. And so we come to chapter 4 this morning which opens with a big threat, the first big threat to the rebuilding work. And here's where we're going in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, there's a conspiracy to demoralize the workers. Verses 7 to 14, there's a plot to assault the workers. And in verses 15 to 23, God's workforce prevails. Now, my, my mother liked to quote an old English rhyme Everybody knows it. You know this old English rhyme. And you also know that it is totally absurd. I'm sure you heard it. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. So not true. (laughs) Who believes that? Nobody believes that. Words Words are powerful very powerful. They can create. I mean, God spoke the the universe into existence. He spoke light into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. Words can inspire. Patrick Henry, I know not what others may, uh, course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Abraham Lincoln, four score and seven years ago. John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Words can also wound very deeply, very deeply. I have a friend who's in his mid-70s now, but he still tears up when he recalls the last words of his father, uh, who died more than 40 years ago. Ordering him out of his room, his father profanely cursed his son. Wounding words on social media, 
uh, causing all kinds of havoc, among, especially among teenagers. You can get not just canceled, but many teenagers have committed suicide. Rabbi Yehuda Berg is right. Both positively and negatively, words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. It's no surprise then that when Nehemiah started working on the wall, his enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, launched a war of words. They hurled insults and ridicules and threats, hoping that their words would would stop the work. It was all a conspiracy to demoralize. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the walls, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, so that was the occasion, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on the wall would break down their wall of stones. You'll remember from Robin's message on, on chapter 2 that Sanballat and his cohorts uh, opposed Nehemiah uh, from the get-go. In chapter 2, it says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, heard about Nehemiah's plan to rebuild the walls, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, now, why would these not guys not want anyone promoting the welfare of the Israelites? Why would, they, why would anyone not want Jerusalem rebuilt? The answer is power and money, power and money. Sanballat, Tobiah, and, and, and Geshem were, were Arabs that the king of Persia had appointed as regional governors. Sanballat was from Moab. Tobiah governed the, in an area uh, east of the Jordan River. And Geshem controlled a very large confederation of Arab states extending from the northeast of Israel to, to southern Palestine. They, they all, but, but Geshem in particular, feared that a rebuilt Jerusalem and, and the return of governance to Judea might interfere with the trade route, the very lucrative north-south tra- trade route, especially in myrrh uh, and frankincense. When you run into opposition... It's often because someone fears losing something they value. You see it whenever management announces a change of some kind uh, in in your workplace. If if they say they're going to reassign offices or workspaces or responsibilities, whoa, look out, look out. The stronger the opposition, the, the greater the fear of loss. So when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was incensed. And, and so he asks these, these, these questions. Now, because Nehemiah had legal authority from the king of Persia to do what he was doing, Sanballat and Tobiah could not legally stop the work. All they could do is try and, try and demoralize the workers and slow the work down through mockery and ridicule. And their questions are, are very short but pointed. Question one, what are these feeble Jews doing? Notice the adjective. This pejorative uses a Hebrew word that, 
that uh, describes plants that are drooping and, and dying. He called the Jews feeble. And in doing that, Sanballat questions whether, he says, are you, you guys, you ordinary people, really think you're up to this task? Will they restore all things was the second question. It's a, it's a statement more than a question. And the statement implies that there's no way these ordinary Jews can rebuild the walls or the gates. They are not skilled stone masons. Question three, will they sacrifice? What are the, what are the chances will you guys will ever see the day when you can offer sacrifices, when you, when you dedicate these walls? What are, what are the chances? And the question ridiculed not just the work, but the Jews' faith in, in Yahweh God. Do you really think you can pray these walls into existence? Question four, will they finish in a day? You guys are, are all enthusiastic about starting this job. Yeah, let's just, it's going to take more than a day to finish it. We'll see how much energy you have by the time it gets going. And question five, will they revive the burned stones in the heaps of rubbish? There, there's not enough good stone left in these piles of rubbish to rebuild the wall. Now, the wall itself could be rebuilt from rubble, but the gates needed to be set in quarried blocks of limestone. That's the only way they could be strong. Couldn't just set them in, in mud and mortar. And when the original gates were, uh, the, the, the gates to the walls were burned, the heat from the fires of that burning uh, weakened the limestone brick. Limestone gets weak with heat and it can crumble. And so the, the original limestone blocks that, that surrounded all the gates, they, they, were, they were destroyed, most of them. If you're trying to do something for God, don't be surprised if you encounter ridicule. Sanballat, uh, he actually used a military review of some kind or a parade in Samaria for, as the, the setting where he could deliver this mockery. You, could, you can almost hear him uh, you know, working the crowd and asking the questions and then pausing to hear the jeers and and the laughter. And when he got done, his yes man, Tobiah, who was standing next to him, gets up and he says, yes, yeah, the, the, the workmanship is, is so bad that if a fox jumped up on the walls, they would collapse. And everybody guffaws and claps their approval. Actually, archaeology has revealed that the, the walls themselves were eight to nine feet thick. Uh, it would take some fox to, to knock that down. And the content of, of Sanballat's derisive speech somehow made its way to Jerusalem, where Nehemiah heard it. And uh, his response to the, the Sanballat's speech is typical for Nehemiah. He prays. Eight times in this little book, we, we see Nehemiah encountering uh, crises. And, and the first thing he does as he stops to pray. Prayer was a, a consistent part of Nehemiah's problem solving. And, and uh, in the face of this demoralizing attack, 
Nehemiah immediately turned to God for help. Verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Whoa, wow, this is pretty strong language, especially for a a prayer. When's, When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Did you hear what he prayed? Turn their insults back on their heads? Let them become captives themselves? God, do not cover their guilt Do not forgive him. That's a prayer. How does that fit with with Jesus' statements about turning the other cheek and and forgiving your enemies and, and not returning evil for evil? Two things. Number one, Nehemiah prays against injustice. We should always pray against injustice. Tell God about it. Ask God to to do something, because God is a God of justice. We know that. When When you see or you experience injustice, don't just shrug it off with, oh, well, that's just the way life is. Nehemiah prays against it. Number two, Nehemiah's prayer is not about taking personal vengeance. Very important. Sanballat and his cronies were not just against Nehemiah, They were opposing God. And many times throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God pronounced judgment on Israel's enemies. Nehemiah was praying according to God's will, that God would deliver Jerusalem and bring about what he promised to Abraham. Nehemiah says, God, this is not right. So God, you take care of these guys. Do what you said you will do. This is, this is your issue. It's become popular in our times to make Jesus soft, to focus on his love and his compassion and his kindness and ignore the fact that when someone opposes God, that's a very serious matter. I mean, Jesus himself said, Woe to you, woe to you Pharisees, you snakes, Damnation on you, he says, for leading people away from God. Well, that's not very kind. That's not very forgiving. And then you have him saying this in Matthew 18. Whoever welcomes one of these, one such child in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus was not soft. God jealously guards and defends his his work and his glory. You have Nehemiah, you have King David, even the Apostle Paul praying very strong prayers. We call them imprecatory prayers. Whenever God's work is under attack and someone is opposing God. On the other hand, Jesus does say, in the Sermon on the Mount especially, he said in the Beatitudes, if you, get, if you get persecuted, if you get criticized, 
Don't seek your own vengeance. Uh, When it's a personal offense, turn the other cheek. It's too easy. He knew it. It's too easy for us to become vindictive, to go overboard. But when somebody threatens the work of God, pray against them. Nehemiah requests divine justice. And he also asks God to shield his people from being demoralized. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with their whole heart. Nehemiah prayed, and then he went back to work. Here's a principle. Prayer should never foster idleness. Instead, it frees us to, to do what we can do and what we should do. We'll see this again in the next section. When Sanballat and his, and his crew realized that their plot to demoralize was not going to be effective, they upped the ante and they began plotting to, to violently assault the workers. Verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They plotted, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we, guess what they did? What did they do when they were opposed? But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Notice it says we prayed to our God and we posted a guard. So you could argue, look, Nehemiah, God is protecting you, right? You're doing God's work. You don't, you don't need a guard. If you post a guard, you're, you're actually, you actually don't believe that God can protect you, right? No, not at all. Before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, God promised that he would give them the promised land. So the Jordan River opens up and they all go across and the first city they get to is what? First first big city, Jericho. They get to Jericho. Jericho is strongly defended. Now now God says, just watch. I'm going to give Jericho to you. They already knew that. And then he says, I want you to march around the city once a day for seven days and then seven times around the last day. Why did he say that? God was perfectly capable of, of crushing those walls in a moment's time. He didn't need marchers. He didn't need trumpeters. He didn't need seven more days. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they go together. And this happens over and over and over in the Bible. In the Gospel of John chapter 9, there's a story about Jesus giving sight to a blind man. Now you know that Jesus healed tons of people. And lots of people, he he healed with just a word. Uh, other people, he, he just touched them. But for this guy in John 9, Jesus reaches, he, he spits, and he makes a mud pie, he gets some dust, makes a mud pie out of his spit, and he puts this spit mixture on the guy's eyes, and he tells them to go wash off his eyes in the pool of Siloam. Was that really necessary? No. But God worked, Jesus did the miracle in response to human obedience. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. 
And these themes come, come together vividly in the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, from, from eternity past, God, the, the Trinity, had, had decided that Jesus would come to earth as a human and he would grow up, he would live, he would die. He would die as the sacrificial lamb for sin. That was, that was God's plan and nothing was going to stop his plan. Yet, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says to all these Jews who are listening to him, he says, you guys, you are guilty of Jesus' death because you killed him with your wicked hands. Well, which one is it? Is it God's sovereignty or is it human actions? God is in charge, but what you do matters. Logically, it doesn't work, okay? But it does at a very practical level. God is sovereign, but it matters how we live. It matters what we do. You pray, uh, God, uh, keep, keep my family safe tonight, and God says, lock your doors. God, give, give, me a new, give me a job. I need a, a job that pays more. Get off your couch and apply for jobs. God, please, please cure my cancer. Go to your doctor. They prayed. They posted a guard, and the work progressed. But, but not for very long. The, the, you know, one of the great things about the Bible is it doesn't airbrush stories. There's no AI that makes uh, smiley faces out of frowny faces. Uh, Nehemiah gets word, they go back to work, and then Nehemiah almost immediately gets word that, that his workers, many of whom are not used to physical labor, they're, they're, they're physically exhausted and they're emotionally exhausted. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, most likely this is a song. They sang it kind of like a, a Negro spiritual the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. The Hebrew song was just four lines long, but it actually accomplished what Sanballat and his crew could not. The workers began losing heart. They got scared. I like the way the message puts uh, verses 11 and 12. And all this time our enemies were saying, they won't know what's hit them. Before they know it, we'll be at their throats, killing them all right and left. This will put a stop to the work. The Jews who were their neighbors kept reporting, they have us surrounded. They're going to attack. If we heard it once, we heard it ten times. You cannot be immersed in a steady drumbeat of negative messages without it rubbing off on you. Don't hang out with Debbie Downers especially if you're tired or if you're under stress. Some people just seem to thrive. They, they just relish passing on bad news. When we lived in interior Alaska, uh, we, uh, we had a neighbor there. Uh, let's see, there it is. We had a... Uh, we had a neighbor who had an airplane. We had an airplane, and both of us kept our airplanes down on the lake in front of our houses. And uh, in order to, to fly in the wintertime when it was below zero, I'd have to go down and, and spend a couple hours heating up the engine to get the oil from being solid so it would actually flow in the engine and, and taking the wing covers off and, and uh, those kinds of things. And, and, and it took quite a while. And, and if my neighbor, Brownie, he was, a, he was also a pilot, 
saw me down on the ice warming up the engine and, and taking the covers off, invariably he would come down on the ice and, and he would say, hey, did you hear there's a big storm coming? It was like he, he never wanted me to fly. I mean, even if it's clear blue sky and, and he doesn't want me to fly. And I'm going, he just seemed to have a negative attitude all the time. You Jews better watch out. Attackers could be on their way right now. Over and over and over again, they hear the same thing. But, but, but verse 6 just said they were halfway done with the walls. I mean, that should be a reason for a party. They should be, they should be dancing in the streets. Instead, this song and this negative message sinks in, and, and the workers say they want to quit. Now, let me quickly say that, that discouragement is not always the result of listening to the wrong messages. Uh, most people know what it feels like to be discouraged. I certainly do. Some of the greatest Christian leaders have had, had uh, big struggles with depression. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody. The Apostle Paul, did you know that? Here's first, uh, 2 Corinthians I mean, this is from the, the most successful missionary in the history of the world. Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we got really discouraged. We despaired even of life itself. You might even say they were suicidal. Christians get sick. Christians have family problems. We get tired. We get depressed. One of my favorite mission stories is this out-of-print book, A Thousand Miles of Miracle in China, written in 1904. A.E. Glover was an Englishman. He was part of the, the China, England, uh, China Inland Mission more than 125 years ago. And, and the story he wrote about is set in the Boxer Rebellion, it's called, in China. 19, the year was 1900. And up to 50,000 Christians, uh, many missionaries, and lots of Chinese, mostly Chinese Christians, were hunted down. They were killed. And so Glover describes many harrowing experiences of fleeing with his wife and two small children, thousand miles overland, trying to get to the coast where they could get on a ship. And countless times they, they cheated death. God supernaturally pr protected and provided for them day after day. But in the middle of all these miracles, and there were many miracles... There was a point, it was four weeks into the journey, when Glover hit rock bottom. He felt sure he and his family would be executed the following morning. And recalling that depression, Glover wrote, Some may perhaps wonder why, after such signal deliverances and sustaining grace, faith did not rise superior to the new trial. I only record the fact that it was so. I love that. I only record the fact that it was so. Now look at this next sentence. Seasons of darkness do not necessarily argue the failure of faith. Often the very reverse is true. For faith needs to be educated and its schooling has to be done in the valley of sorrow as well as on the hill of vision. If you are in a season of darkness, of discouragement, it does not mean you are being disobedient. Know that. God may have you in school. Don't listen to the voices 
that want to pile on guilt or, or, or convince you that the future is hopeless. You may be on the verge of the greatest time in your life. You just can't see it because you're in the valley of sorrow. So Nehemiah lifts his workers' chins and he redirects their eyes and he, then he acted to allay their fears in verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So the crisis was abated. Nehemiah was a very wise and and persuasive leader. But he always gives God the credit. In, In the last section of the chapter, we see God's workforce prevails. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, and the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. So once again, it's God's power, his sovereignty, and human effort. They go together. And affirming his workers and and also arming them, Nehemiah uh, made them more secure. But he also instituted an emergency alert system. Look at verse 18. He didn't even need cell phones. Each of the builders wore his side or sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Divine sovereignty. Most likely there was more than one trumpeter. There was probably one trump, a main trumpeter next to Nehemiah all the time, and then a series of other trumpeters who, uh, who passed on the alarm all the way around the wall. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. And then Nehemiah gave one more order to, to ensure security. He asked the out-of-town workers not to go back to their towns at night, but uh, to, but to stay in Jerusalem. And then to demonstrate his own readiness, he, he added verse 23. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. So Nehemiah was, was first to serve. Never ask anybody to do what he wasn't willing to do himself. This is the Persian king's cupbearer doing this. Working the longest hours accepting the the toughest duty and the principle when God calls you to do something. You don't don't even think about sacrifices. You don't talk about sacrifices and, and hardship. The greatest example of this, of course, was our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, "For for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God's sovereign plan worked. Uh, he won. Isaiah 53, 10. 
It's what God had in mind. This is the message again. It's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And we are the beneficiaries of that. I want to, I want to finish up, though, by going back one more time to the awesome power of words that start this chapter. Sanballat and his cronies used words to tear down. But that is not what God does. It's not what he likes to do. When Jesus was about to, mo- to kick off the most significant career that had ever happened in the history of mankind, God the Father chose to launch Jesus' career with words. Not a miracle, words. Jesus and John the Baptist were wading out of the Jordan River and after Jesus' baptism, and God the Father spoke from heaven. As soon as Jesus was baptized, Matthew says, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love with him I am well pleased. Can you imagine what that did for Jesus? You're, you're my son, and, and I'm proud of you. You know, God says the same kinds of things about you. He says you are worth everything. He says you are worth dying for. He even calls you priests and, and nobles in 1 Peter 2. And if God used the baptism of Jesus to affirm his son, And if God says such majestic things about us, how should we be talking to each other? Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And in Greek, building others up is actually an architectural term. Architects don't tear down. They imagine what could be And they design what could be. And that's what we're to do with each other. Focusing on what could be in each other's lives. Seeing, seeing, imagining what God could do through his people. Bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the practicality of of the words of Scripture that are thousands of years old. Thank you for the examples that you give us in the Bible, especially thank you for the example, the sacrifice, the love of Jesus Christ through whom we have salvation. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.